Yes, sir. Oh, good, to you, good to see you, ma'am. Good to see you. They, uh, they, they turned off the music, and that means immediately the fellowship must cease at that point. Uh, up until that, young lady, would you sit down, please? <laughs> uh, and I wouldn't, listen, if you're ever walking around, don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, <laughs> I travel the world with that lady, actually. Uh, she was just in Malawi for the last uh, six weeks uh, this, this summer, so anyway. Glad to have you here, and glad you can make your appearance. In, uh, but it, it's great to be uh, with you guys again. I uh, Once again, Pastor 38, I uh, want to thank you for the privilege of being able to come. Uh, sometimes in my head I refer to him as Pastor 38, because he is the 38th pastor of this church, if you can believe that. Uh, man, I'm telling you, in those early days, they were going through pastors, like, really quick. Uh, for real. They, th- these guys were lasting a year and a half, two years, and all of that. And so, hey, you beat the average already. Um, <laughs> hallelujah to you. Yes. <laughs> but uh, Pastor Jeff kicked us off this morning in the nicest possible way. Uh, but that was awesome this morning. Uh, man, what a great start that we had. As we've already talked about, we're here this week to talk about the subject of prophecy. And uh, so I, I, in the evening sessions, okay, they, they kind of, you know, let the light dude carry the, the evenings. The guys that are really carrying the mail are the ones that are doing it in the, the morning sessions. Uh, so when we talk about the subject of prophecy, they are going to give you extensive coverage of uh, everything that is going to be taking place, going into some of the passages that you've always wondered about, and they're going to be in the weeds, okay? So now what I'm commissioned to do is, is talk about the key subjects of prophecy and uh, we're not going to be in the weeds, uh, but we're also not going to be at 30,000 feet either. We're going we're gonna to get down to where if, you're, if all you can do is come in the evening sessions, I, I firmly believe that you will be able to get a, a biblical and a practical understanding of the events that we're going to be experiencing in the next little bit, y'all. We're talking about the rapture tonight, We're talking about the judgment seat of Christ tomorrow night. Tuesday night, we'll be talking about the second coming, and then Wednesday night, we'll talk about the millennium. Now, let, let me just, uh, as we're getting started here, let me, let me talk to you a little bit about tomorrow night. Uh, I don't know what all has been said to this point, but if there's only one night that you're going to be able to come beyond this... My recommendation would be, come to all of them, but 
the recommendation would be that you come tomorrow night. It's going to be a, a very unusual uh, kind of a service. Uh, rather than actually preaching, uh, what I'm going to be doing is taking passages, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14, uh, these passages that are talking about the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to do it from more of a guy that is actually experiencing the judgment seat of Christ. It, it will be, in my, if it comes together, it will be incredibly exciting, and it will be incredibly sobering. And so if there's just one night that you could come, I would suggest that you do that. Some of my dear friends, uh, actually he is an LFBI student uh, that uh, was serving in uh, the church where I was in Columbus, uh, and they now live in Cleveland, but they'll be coming down tomorrow night to provide uh, special music. I don't know if you guys know B.B. and C.C. Winans, but I will tell you this, they don't have anything over <laughs> on Tori and Shauna that'll be here tomorrow night. I, I may bomb tomorrow night, y'all. It'll be worth the price of admission just to come and hear Tori and Shauna. So it'll be a big night. I, I hope that you'll be able to, to be a, a part of that, okay? But... Like I said, uh, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the rapture. You know, what, what's kind of crazy to me is that with where we are in the 21st century, if you go back as recently as three decades ago, just about every person or every church in evangelical circles they would all be talking about the fact that the next event on the prophetic calendar is going to be the rapture of the church. That, that was just pretty, again, in evangelicalism, that was pretty much a given. But as we've talked about in previous certainty conferences, because of what has happened in evangelical circles when it comes to uh, dispensationalism and this, this crazy rise in Calvinism and Reformed theology, covenant theology. Th there's been a shift that's taken place. I, I'm not going to say that everybody that is a Calvinist believes what I'm about to say, but I will say that many people that are of that persuasion, particularly in what is called the New Reformed, don't even believe that there will be a rapture. Do not believe that there will be a tribulation period. Do not believe that there will be a millennium. They will give you that the Lord's going to come back and we're all going to be a part of his everlasting kingdom. But as far as, you know, the way us poor dispensationalists and again, in their conferences, they do laugh us to scorn because of what we believe in. What they say is, you know, those dispensationalists with their cute little charts that the rapture takes place here and the seven-year tribulation, which gives way to the second coming, which gives way to the millennium. Okay, they, they laugh that to scorn. For real. And, you know, and, and we would say, 
well, what about the book of Revelation? And, and you know what they say? <laughs> you poor deluded souls. <laughs> Don't you understand? I, anybody that knows anything knows that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Have you ever heard that? This is what they say. It, it's apocalyptic literature. And again, if you knew anything about the Bible, you would know that apocalyptic literature was never intended by God to be understood. Which makes sense if you don't think about it. <laughs> Especially with where Pastor Jeff took us this morning. Do you remember what the first verse was? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, I, I'm, I'm not real smart, but I think I do understand the word revelation. <laughs> this is given to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next phrase says, to show his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. So, yeah, yeah, I guess we are a bunch of village idiots because we actually believe that we can understand the book of Revelation. But then when we tell them <laughs> that we actually believe that the way to approach the book of Revelation is by taking it literally, then they're out, man. Again, I'm telling you, they think we're village idiots for believing <laughs> what we believe. And, uh, you know, especially when it comes to this thing of believing in a rapture. And, and what may come as a surprise to them is that, actually, I don't believe in a rapture either. I actually believe in three of them. And that's where we'll pick up in your notes tonight if you got those, and if you didn't, just yank your neighbors over in your lap, and you can take notes that way. But as we get started, I'd like to invite you to turn once again to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4 is where we'll kind of dive in tonight. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And just understand that in the book of Revelation, this is where the rapture actually is located. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And notice that John says... After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, now watch this phrase, come up hither. Now, now something interesting about that little phrase, come up hither, is it appears three different times in our Bible. The first one is in Proverbs 25 and verse 7, where it says, for better is it that it be said unto thee, here it is, come up hither, than thou shouldest be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine eyes have seen. The, the, the second time that it appears is in the verse that we're looking at uh, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Of course, we're not going to take the time to read it again. But the third one is in Revelation chapter 11. And verse 12, where it says, And they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies 
beheld them, or they watched them go up. Okay, so the three raptures, get it in, in your mind and in your notes this way. The first rapture, the first come up hither, is the come up hither of Proverbs 25 and verse 7. It's the rapture of the Old Testament saints that has already taken place at the resurrection of Christ. You'll remember that Ephesians 4 talks about the fact that he led captivity captive. When he came out of that grave, those Old Testament saints were raptured. They were taken to heaven. The second rapture, the the come up hither of where we are in our Bibles tonight, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, this is the rapture of New Testament saints that we're anticipating at any moment. And then the third rapture, the come up hither of Revelation chapter 11 and verse 12, is the rapture of tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation period. Okay, so as we're talking about the subject of the rapture, one of the things you want to get into your mind is that there are actually three of them. But we're here tonight, of course, to talk about the rapture that has specifically to do with, with us. And quite honestly, that we anticipate happening before this service is over tonight. Anybody be cool with that? <laughs> Amen. I, I would love to not preach this message. <laughs> if that's the reason, okay? So don't interrupt, just for the heck of it. Okay, but uh, we're going to begin, and I'm calling this in your notes, let's get busy here, a detailed description of the sequence of the rapture. Detailed description of the sequence of the rapture. I, I want you to be able to leave here tonight knowing that if the Lord did come tonight, this is... This is the way that it's going to unfold, okay? And, and we begin looking in Revelation chapter 4, and I want you to notice, first of all, in your notes, I want you to notice the time it will happen, the time it will happen. Notice that verse 1 begins this way. It says, after this, okay, now, when we come to chapter 4 and verse 1, and we see after this, the obvious question to ask is, after what, right? And so what it does, it forces us to walk this back and make sure that we understand the context. Okay, now, I'm getting ready to make an incredible observation, okay? hate to break my humility in saying that, but there is a, a, an incredible observation that I'm about to make. I want you to notice... That chapter 4 and verse 1 comes right after chapter 3 ends. Listen, you've got to have some spiritual wherewithal going on to make an observation like that. I hope that you won't be intimidated by the depth of that. Okay, very obviously, that after this is right after chapter 3 ends, okay? And, and so what is chapter 2 and chapter 3 about? For a good portion of us that are in this room, we would understand that in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, our Lord dictated to John 
seven letters to seven churches that actually existed in 90 to 95 A.D. or so. And yet, and of course, when he wrote them, they had a specific historical application to those churches. He was addressing what was really going on in those churches. However, when we take those seven letters and we put them into the context of the book of Revelation, what we learn is that those seven letters to the seven churches are representative of seven periods of church history that make up the church age. So that with each of these letters in a prophetic and even devotional sense, What's happening in those letters is our Lord is actually outlining the history of the church from John's day, listen, all the way to the end of the church age. Okay, you got that? And you'll notice that the seventh of these periods of church history, the the letter represented in the, the letter to the Laodiceans, This is the letter that represents the period of history that we're presently living in. It comes to a conclusion, this letter representing our time, it comes to a conclusion in chapter 3 and verse 22. And as soon as he's finished chapter 3 and verse 22, the first words off of John's pen are, after this and so in the context or contextually what that means and this is in your notes the rapture will be that event which concludes the church age in other words the church of jesus christ in the last days of the laodicean church period will be that church that paul talked about in first thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17 that would be alive and remain to be raptured off of this planet. You understand that? The Laodiceans are those who will be alive and remain to be raptured off of the planet. And that's why in the book of Revelation, listen now, after mentioning the church 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation, In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, the church is raptured. And in the remainder of chapter 4 and on into chapter 5, we see a detailed account of what is happening with the church in heaven in that seven-year period after the rapture. That's chapter 4 and 5. Chapters 6 through 18 of the book of Revelation, or the detailed account of what is going on on the earth during that same period of time, those seven years of tribulation. And in chapter 6 through 18, what he does there, and you'll learn more about this in the morning sessions, is he gives us four different accounts of the tribulation period, which of course culminates with the second coming of Christ. And people are like, a lot of people think that chapter 6 begins the tribulation period, and it's just, you know, goes on from there, and it's just, you know, in, in a chronological deal all the way to chapter 19. Not so much. 
What is happening here is the Lord is giving us four different accounts of the tribulation period, which culminates with the second coming of Christ. People say, why in the world would he give you four accounts of the same thing? And we would, of course, say, well, he gave us four accounts of his first coming, didn't he? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And because of his consistency, <laughs> he gives us four accounts of the tribulation period. But the, the, listen, the point that I, I want to make sure that you get is in chapter 6 through 18, you, there is not one mention of the church. After 19 times in the first three chapters, we come to chapter 4 and verse 1, and there is the rapture. Again, chapter 4 and 5 is what's taking place in heaven during that seven-year period, and what is happening on the earth in chapters 6 through 19, and not one reference, not one time, nowhere to be found is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't see the church, again, in the book of Revelation, until you see it coming out of heaven at the end of that seven years, following behind the Lord Jesus Christ on white horses at his second coming. Okay, so that's the time it will happen. In, in short, again, what you want to get from those first two words of Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 is that the rapture is the event that closes the church age and for all practical purposes begins the tribulation period. Okay, that's the time it will happen. And, and then next, number two, John reveals to us the way it will happen. The way it will happen. And John gives us, in, in verse 1, in the first part of verse 2, he gives to us a brief outline of the sequence of events that will take place as the Lord translates us from the earth and into his presence in the, in the third heaven. And I want you to look again at what it says in chapter 4 and verse 1. John says, after this, okay, we got that. After the layout of sea in church period, after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And, just wanted to wake you all up there. And immediately, he says, I was in the Spirit. Okay, and, and so what John has just done is he's given us that detailed description of the way that it will happen. But, but listen, the way that John states it here is so precise, it's so quick, it's so brief, that, wow, you've you got to be pretty astute. And in fact, God chose to reveal it that way because of a biblical principle in Scripture. We, Pastor Jeff took us to this this morning. The way that we approach this book is with a firm understanding that we can't understand it <laughs> that it's beyond us that these human eyes these human human eyes can't see it these human ears can't hear it these human minds can't conceive of it 
But as Pastor Jeff said, it has to be, what's the word? Revealed to you. And the way that he reveals it to you is by his spirit. And the way that the spirit does it is not osmosis. He does it as we compare things spiritual with things spiritual. He does it as we compare scripture with, with, with scripture. Okay, And so there are two key passages in the New Testament that along with what we just read from Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 and, and coming into chapter 2, there's two places in the Bible that give us the precise understanding of what it is that John actually experienced in Revelation chapter 4 and what those of us who know the Lord are going to experience in the very near future. Okay, so one of these passages that we've got to make sure that we understand because it gives the explanation of what John experienced. The first one is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. The other passage is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 57. And, and, and what I want us to do as we talk about the actual sequence of the rapture is look at the things these passages have to say in light of what John says that he just experienced, and, and then we'll pull it all together at the end to give a, just a blow-by-blow description of the way that it will actually happen when the Lord calls for us and takes us to himself. And, and first of all, I'd like to ask you to turn back, if you would now, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Okay, and of course, as you're turning, you're understanding what we're doing. We just read exactly what's going to happen in the rapture but again it came so fast that we might need a little more explanation from the spirit and one of these places that we need to look is first thessalonians chapter four and again what first thessalonians four verses 13 through 17 actually is is a a biblical explanation of everything that John experienced in John or Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. All, all the same components are there. As we get into this passage, what we're going to see is heaven opens, there's a shout, there's a voice, there's a trumpet. Again, everything that we just read in Revelation chapter 4, it's just explained here. And I want you to look with me at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. That's in the last days, probably the largest denomination in America. Ignorant brethren. <laughs> but, but, okay, make, make sure that you understand why he's saying this. Paul and Silas and Timothy have come to Thessalonica, and oh my goodness, man, God rocked the world in that city with only three Sabbath, I mean, probably about two and a half weeks that they spent in this church, and God just did unbelievable things. But do you remember, this is the place where they hired lewd fellows of the baser sort <laughs> to cause problems for them. And what had happened is Paul and Silas and Timothy had to get the heck out of there, and they're wondering, you know what's happening with these people and so they very shortly thereafter write a letter back to them and, and they've already gotten word that a lot of the people in the church are freaking out 
Because as Paul and Silas and Timothy were there, they'd explain to them, just like we talk about all the time, hey, the Lord's coming back. The Lord's coming back. The Lord's coming back. And, and so what had happened, these lewd fellows of the baser sort have come in, and some of the people there had died before the Lord came back. And so the people are freaking. And that's why he says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, Watch this now. Concerning them which are asleep. Okay, now if we're going to really understand this, we've got to understand what he's talking about. He, he mentions this word sleep, and he talks about it several times in, in this passage. You see it here in verse 13. He says, them which are asleep. You see it in the middle of verse 14. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus. You see it at the end of verse 15 shall not prevent them which are uh, asleep. And, and I think it's important for you to understand here that the, the word sleep or the word asleep, it, it's not a, a, a euphemism that Paul is using to camouflage the ugly reality of death. You know, uh, pastoring here for 25 years, I got to know all of the... Uh, all of the funeral directors in this area. I mean, we're boys. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of people that died around here, man. And so, you know, I, I've watched, I've watched as these guys handle this, this subject, you know, with, with the family. Well, your loved one has passed. You know, uh, it wouldn't be good business to, Okay, now, they're dead. Okay, they, they croaked. Uh, okay, no, they, they're going to find these soft ways. They, they have fallen asleep. Okay, what I want you to understand is that's not what Paul is doing here. He's not trying to soften the blow of what has happened because people ha have died. A as you go through the New Testament, what, what you find is that this word sleep is the word that is used to describe the death of a believer. He even defines that for us in verse 16. Look at it. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Here it is now. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And there's the definition of who he's talking about when he talks about them that sleep. They are the dead in Christ. Or in other words, someone who died, who knew the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And what the Bible teaches, now this is a very important part of this whole thing. Try to start getting this into your head. What the Bible teaches is that what takes place when a person dies who knows the Lord is that at that very minute, that very second, when they draw their last breath, their soul and spirit comes out of that body and the body goes to sleep. Did you get that? The soul and spirit comes out of their body and the body goes to sleep. Okay, listen, all the way back in Genesis chapter 35, God spelled this out for us. In Genesis 35, okay, get the illustration. Here, here's what's happening here. 
Rachel is pregnant, and she and her husband Jacob are heading out of Bethel. Verse 16 says that after they had gone just a, a, a little way, they come to Ephrath, and what happens as she comes into Ephrath is she goes into hard labor. Okay, just a, a, a little footnote here of something that I, that I think is pretty incredible here is that in verse 17, look at it, the, the midwife tells her, fear not, and explains that she would have a son. And I want you to notice in verse 18 that Rachel names her newborn son Benoni, which means son of my sorrow, but his father names him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, and verse 19 perks up our ears just a little bit when it lets us know that Ephrath is Bethlehem. Hmm. Now let me ask you something. Do you know of any other pregnant lady in the Bible who went into hard labor as she came into Bethlehem who was told by an intermediary to fear not, for she would give birth to a son a son that would become the son of her sorrow, but would be to his father the son of his right hand? Okay, we don't have time for that, okay? But, <laughs> but I don't know how you go to that passage and leave that alone, amen? Okay, the next time I'll leave that out, okay? But, but I, I, I'm, I'm sure that all that's just a coincidence. But the point I want you to see here is what happens to Rachel, okay? As Rachel gives birth, she dies. And God's going to let us know something very significant about what actually happens when somebody dies. Look at verse 18. And it came to pass as her soul was departing, for she died. Okay, now just stop right, right there. Okay, Rachel is about to draw her last breath as this child is born. And as she, she, the son is born, she dies. And immediately, the soul departs from her body and the body falls asleep. Do you see that? We see the same thing in Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, of course, is a record of the sermon that a deacon in the church at Antioch preached a man by the name of Stephen, and, and his message was just a little bit too much for the, the ruling council of, of Jerusalem. And, and so rather than just walk out on him or telling him he's a jerk and verbally rebuke him, they kill him. I mean, what kind of whackness is that? And Stephen becomes the first martyr of, of, of the church. And look at what it says in verse 59. And, and they stoned Stephen, and he, he called upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my body. Is that what it says? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And verse 60. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. And, and, and so do you see what happens? Okay, listen. The Lord 
receives the Spirit as the body falls asleep and awaits its resurrection. Okay, now now something that you need to, to note here is that in the Old Testament... When the the spirit and the soul departed out of someone who died, as in the case of Rachel that we just looked at, that soul and spirit at that point wasn't received into the presence of the Lord like Stephen was. And of course, I mean, if you just think about it for a second, you'll understand why. Because during the time of the Old Testament... The blood of Jesus Christ has not yet been offered as the atonement for sin, and Christ had not yet sealed the victory with the resurrection. And that's why in Luke chapter 16, with the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus talked in verse 22 about believers being in a place called Abraham's bosom. Or what he referred to when he was talking to the thief on the cross in Luke 23 and verse 43. The same place is referred to as paradise. Okay, but that's what was happening for those in the Old Testament economy. But for us, and by us, I'm talking about those of us that have been born again in the church age. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8 that for us to be absent... From the body, in other words, for your your spirit and soul to be absent from the body is for that soul and spirit to be present with the Lord. So when we die, what happens is our soul and spirit departs out of our body and it is received by the Lord and the body goes to sleep And some people come along and they throw it in the ground until it's awakened by the trumpet of God at the rapture. And so so Paul lets us know back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, he lets us know, and he's letting these Thessalonians know what happened to these people that had lost their loved ones. He's letting us know. What happens to people that we church with or are related to or live near? What happens when people who know the Lord actually die? You know, you're open here to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18. And I, I feel like I, I need to say this, and this is probably the best place to say it. Th- this whole thing that he's talking about, as he's giving us the explanation of the rapture, please don't take it out of its context. Yes, we're here at a prophecy conference and we're learning about the rapture tonight because of a passage like this. But I want you to notice verse 18. Why the Spirit of God actually inspired this. He says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Rather than just filling our heads with a, a bunch of cool information about the rapture and how it's going to take place and the sequence, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> the real issue is the fact that in a very real world, and that's the world we live in, y'all, in a real world, man, we need to know what is happening with those who have gone before us. And, and he goes on in the middle of verse 13 and he says, that ye sorrow not. <laughs> okay, now, wow. If the verse stopped there, we, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? 
Because any of us who have ever lost someone who's very close to us, man, we, we know that death brings sorrow. Death brings grief and pain and, and, and tears. But notice that he doesn't say that we're not to grieve or that we're not to sorrow. He doesn't tell us that we're not to cry. What he says is, I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. That's the issue. And here's why, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, you know who those are now, right? Even so them also which sleep in Jesus, will God bring with him. You see, listen, y'all. When, when Jesus died, he bore the wages of sin in his death. Do you believe that? And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 56 says that what gives death its sting is sin. And, and it's just like that, that honeybee. A, a, a honeybee is a harmless little bug that's really cute to draw and all that stuff. It's just that that doggone thing has got that lousy stinger on it. But, but what's interesting is once that honeybee inserts its stinger into someone, do, do you already know this? It can't sting anyone else because the bee dies. Listen now, what Paul's trying to get us to see is on the cross, death drove its stinger into Christ and left it there. He bore the whole sting of death and in that process defeated death because he defeated sin. So that death, for those of us who know the Lord, those of us who have had our sin removed, death has no more sting. He died and took the sting of death so that our death might be nothing more than falling asleep. And that's why here in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, Paul says that death is swallowed up in victory. Because you see, Jesus Christ didn't just die look back in first thessalonians 4 14 our confidence is in the fact that he rose again and you see the, the the reason that the resurrection was so significant is the fact that it was proof positive that the victory over sin and death and hell and the grave had been won and not only that but the fact that because he rose again we too will rise just as he did. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the, watch this word now, the firstfruits of them that slept. His rising was just the firstfruits, and the firstfruits were the guarantee that a harvest would follow. And so you see, there, there's, there's no need for anybody 
who knows the Lord to fear death, whether it be our own or whether it be the, 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 uh, the death of a loved one. Because according to Psalm 23 and verse 4, all that death really is is simply a valley of shadow where Jesus walks with us. Listen, not into the valley of the shadow of death, but what, y'all? But through the valley of the shadow of death. And the psalmist says, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And listen, you can bank on that, folks, that Jesus will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. You can also bank on the fact that he was there to walk your loved ones through that valley as well. And 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says that you can also bank on the fact that when Jesus comes again in the clouds at the rapture, that they will be with him. The end of verse 14 says, Even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And the reality is they'll be with him then because they're with him now. You see, they've already entered into the blessedness of what the end of verse 17 talks about. Ever being with the Lord. And, and man, I, I, I get it. I, I live it with you. We may sorrow because they're not with us. But we can take comfort in the fact that they are with him. But I want you to notice back in verses 13 and 14 here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Now this is key. That them which are asleep is used in contrast to those who are alive and remain. Okay, you've got two groups of people. Those which are asleep, they've already died before the Lord has returned. And then you have those that will be alive and remain. Verse 15 says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. And, and those who are alive and remain is, is the, simply the way that God describes that generation of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who, like Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, would not see death but would be alive in their physical bodies and remain on the earth until we're raptured off of it. And he says, look at the verse again, verse 15, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Okay, now the way that the word prevent is, is, is used here is a little bit different than the way that we would use it today. It is a beautiful Old English word because the word actually means pre-event, okay? Or before the event. We would use the word precede to mean the same thing today. And what he's saying here, and work with me, get your mind on this. What he's saying here is that those of us who are alive and remain, we won't be raptured before those who are asleep. 
But, but notice at the end of verse 14, because this is a little, a little weird here. At the end of verse 14, it says that when Jesus comes for us at the rapture, that then we sleep in Jesus, he will bring with him. But if you look at in verse 16, he says that at the rapture, they're going to go up before we do. So, so what's the deal? Are they, are they coming with him or is he coming for them? And the answer, of course, as we saw this morning, to the answer to that question is yes. And those of you that may be newer to the Bible are going, how can it be both? Okay, and what we need to understand, you, 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 this is easy, okay, so just think. What we need to understand is in verse 14, what he's talking about, when, when he's talking about them coming with him, he's talking about their souls and their spirits. Then in verse 16, when he talks about them rising before we do, he's talking about their bodies. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at the end of verse 16. And the dead in Christ, those who are asleep, shall rise first. Okay, in other words, that body that is planted in the ground, every time the soul of someone who knows the Lord comes out of it and is received into the presence of the Lord, that body or the remains of that body are going to come up out of that grave and the remains of that body are going to be transformed into a glorious body and connect with its soul and spirit. Do you understand that? And so what Paul is actually saying here is, Hey, listen, don't worry uh, about your loved ones. First of all, he's saying, they're already with the Lord, and when he comes, they'll be coming with him. And no, they may not know the thrill of being raptured, but they will know the thrill of being resurrected. And the end of verse 16 says that that those bodies coming up out of the ground is going to happen. It's going to happen when, y'all? It's going to happen first. And, of course, the reason is they're under the earth, and they've got about six more feet to travel than those of us who are alive on the earth. And so then it all comes together. So he says at the end of verse 15 that our being raptured won't precede them. And yet, the fact of the matter is, we don't need to get, you know, too engrossed in all of the, the fine-tuning of the timing of it with these finite minds, because 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52 says that it's all going to take place in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Okay? It's all going to happen just like that, y'all. But, if you could see it in slow motion, <laughs> you would see those bodies come up out of the, the ground and as they're getting right about to where we are we start rising up and we're all glorified in the air and for us to, to really understand this there's one more book of the Bible that we got to go to. Remember, we, we talked about, we started in Revelation 4, 1 and 2. We said, man, that's so cryptic. It's so brief. 
we better compare Scripture with Scripture. So we've gone to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now I want to take you briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because I want to make sure that you understand what Paul is actually talking about that's going to be taking place. Okay, As we've already seen, there's a lot that's happening all at one time. Okay, so now, when we come into Revelation, or, hello, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is talking in great detail about the resurrection. And he's been talking about the fact that because Christ rose from the dead, that verse 20, we too are going to rise. Again, we, we looked at this a minute ago. He was just the first fruits of resurrection. But there were some in Corinth who were, who were mocking this whole resurrection thing, and they were asking some questions in verse 35, trying to poke fun at this whole teaching. And, and they said, verse 35, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? <laughs> and so Paul, he answers this in verses 36 to 54. We're not going to take the time to to go into detail into those verses, just get this. Basically what Paul is saying is that there is going to be a transformation of these bodies. There has to be. Okay, The reason for the transformation, as verse 50 lets us know, is that flesh and blood, these flesh and blood bodies that we're living in, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. In order to, to live in that heavenly domain, he, he says in verses 47 and, and 48, that we can't be earthly like Adam, we must be heavenly like Christ, flesh and blood in verse 50, is a reference to these earthly, physical Bodies, and the whole point is, is that we cannot enter into the eternal kingdom in our present earthly bodies. They've got to be transformed, verse 53, because there's no way for an incorruptible, immortal kingdom of God to be inhabited by a corruptible, mortal body. And he explains here, just like he, he did in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that the way that it's going to shake out is some of us are going to die. And, and they will take this corruptible, mortal body, and they'll put it in the ground. And, and, and one day, verse 52, the trumpet's going to sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and what's going to happen is this whole body is going to be changed. But look at verse 51. Not all of us are going to be dead when that trumpet sounds. But whether we be dead or alive at that moment, our bodies are all going to experience the same exact transformation. Some of us are going to die. They'll put our bodies in the ground, and when the trumpet sounds, that body will be changed the second that we come out of the grave. But there will be others who are alive and remain on the earth at that time, and they will be changed on the way up. But as both 
verse 51 and verse 52 both say, we shall all be changed. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 and verse 21. He says, for our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch this now who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Listen, y'all, that's what we have to look forward to. Getting a body that is like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ right now, that glorified body that is incapable of sinning. You understand the reason we sin right now is because we're trapped in this earth suit, earth suit, this earthly body. And it's going to be transformed into the same exact body of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, that is incapable of sinning. I, I love the way that John talks about this same promise in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know. Not hope so, think so, pray it'll be so. We know that when he shall appear, here it is, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is this is the same thing that paul was talking about in first thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 when he said for the lord himself shall descend from heaven okay that's when we will see him as he is and he says in that passage in first thessalonians here he says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. And you know what the shout is? It's the come up hither that John heard in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. After the door opened, it's the same thing here. Heaven opens, the Lord descends, and he shouts. Come up hither. And remember the end of verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 4. It says that when he does this, that he will have with him all of the people who were saved that have, have passed away. And he descends from heaven with them. And he shouts, come up hither. And just like Revelation 4, 2, as we saw it, immediately... Just like 1 Corinthians 15, 52 said, in the twinkling of an eye, which the General Electric Company has determined to be 11 one hundredths of a second. Okay, faster than that. <laughs> okay, listen, in that very instant, the bodies of the believers that are with him, okay, their soul and spirit is with him, the bodies that they lived in down on the earth 
will be risen from the grave and transformed into a glorified body and connect back to the soul and spirit. And the bodies of those of us who are alive and remain will be transformed on the way up. And I want you to notice what else in verse 16, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. There will also be, just like John talked about in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, there will also be a voice. And he says that it is the voice of the archangel. The, the a- archangel is called, in Jude chapter 9, the archangel is called Michael. And I don't know for sure what he's going to say, but I do know that Michael has had a pretty good, pretty good seats for the last 6,000 years of human history, and he has watched this whole scenario of human life unfold ever since man and woman died in the garden. And at this moment, the victory for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is now complete. And 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And it would appear that the archangel is going to be the one to declare that. You hear that? The Lord says, come up hither. The archangel says, yeah! Death is swallowed up in victory. We've been waiting for this. There's also going to be, just like John heard in Revelation 4.1, a trumpet. Verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4 says, and with the trump of God. I can't believe that our leader hasn't found a way to use that somehow. <laughs> and with the trump of God. And, 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 and it's so crazy, y'all, when you start cross-referencing this, this whole trumpet thing in the Bible. Because what you find is that trumpets have always been used in the Bible to call people to an assembly. Have you ever looked at trumpets in the Bible? It's amazing. Would you, just real quick, the, the first time that you find a trumpet being sounded in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 13, and listen to what it says. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall, what? Come up to the mount. you got to love that, y'all. It, it's the same kind of picture in Joshua chapter 6 verses 4 and 5. Verse 5 of Joshua chapter 6 says that when the people heard the trumpet the people ascended up. In in Judges chapter 6 and verse 34, Gideon blew a trumpet and verse 35 says they came up to meet them. Can't make this stuff up, man. In 2 Samuel 6.15, it says, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Jeremiah 4.5 says, Blow ye the trumpet in the land, cry together and say, Assemble yourselves. Come up hither. 
You know, what that tells me is we're just cross-referencing that. The Lord's been thinking about this for a long time, y'all. And he's just all along the way. Just drop little nuggets to say, this is how it's all going to shake out, man. Trumpet's going to sound. And we're going home. Okay. So as we put a bow on it, let's take from everything that we've seen, from Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 57. Let's put all of the pieces of the sequence together. Okay, this is going to come quick. Okay, what we've seen from all of these passages, first of all, the first thing that's going to happen, okay, if the rapture takes place in 10 minutes, this is what's going to happen. Heaven's going to open, and the Lord descends. Heaven opens, and the Lord descends. Secondly, is the shout. And the shout is, come up hither. And then thirdly, is the voice. The voice of the archangel as he declares, Ah! Death is swallowed up in victory. And then fourthly, the trumpet sounds. And then fifthly, the bodies of the dead believers are resurrected, glorified, and reunited with their souls and spirits in the air. And then number six, the body of those who are alive are raptured and glorified in the air. And then finally, number seven, and thank you for being so dutifully taking notes, but don't miss the significance of number seven. We are taken to the third heaven, and from that point forward, y'all, we will forever be with the Lord. Don't pack up just yet. <laughs> Listen, at that point, our location may change. Because after seven years, we're coming back for a thousand years on the earth. But the beauty of what's going to take place on that seventh thing is... No matter where the location is, wherever he is, we will be with him. Hallelujah. Pastor Jeff.